Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland, and I'm co-host of this channel. Since 2004, the Malay Muslim majority provinces in the border region of southern Thailand have been racked by a violent insurgency. Over 7,000 people have been killed, many thousands more injured. Currently, there are 60,000 Thai security personnel stationed in the region to conduct counterinsurgency operations. Another 80,000 people have been organised into so-called volunteer defence force. Ruth Stryker spent time researching this troubled region, talking to local officials, activists, journalists, academics, as well as military conscripts and senior officers. The result is a fascinating book, Uneasy Military Encounters, The Imperial Politics of Counterinsurgency in Southern Thailand. The book is a theoretically adventurous exploration into the conflict in Thailand's Deep South, in which the author weaves the themes of empire, policing, gender, history, and religion. Today I'm talking to the book's author, Ruth Stryker. Ruth, uh, thanks for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to talk about your book. Thanks so much for having me, Patrick. Now, some listeners might be curious as to why you would put yourself apparently into the middle of a violent counterinsurgency, with, I assume, some considerable risk to yourself, what was it that drew you to Thailand's southern border provinces? And more generally, how did you get interested in Southeast Asia? Right. So I'll have to start by saying that I was a high school exchange student to northern Thailand in 1998 and later I went on to study political science in Berlin with a focus on peace and conflict studies. And still kind of kept this focus on Southeast Asia. I went back and forth to the region. I wrote my master's thesis about issues of masculinities and violence with youth gangs in East Timor, actually. I also studied in, in Australia, by the way. And, and then had the chance to work for a German political foundation in Cambodia after, right after um, I finished my master's. And it was more sort of, you know, development work where I had to juggle 10 topics at a time. And that was really the incentive for me to say, I, I want to rather delve deep into, into one topic. And I would really like to return to Thailand because I, I learned to speak Thai um, when I was there as an exchange student. As I said, I'm still in contact with my host family there. And while I had been studying political science, uh, the flare-up of the conflict in, in southern Thailand had occurred, as you just um, said, Patrick, in 2004. So I got interested in that and first proposed to write a PhD about the resistance movement and about issues of masculinities and violence with the resistance movement. This project got accepted, and I went to do a pre-field trip in southern Thailand, where I actually got to talk to some members of the resistance movement, but that was back in 2009-10, and it was really difficult to get people to... To, to, to really be accepting of uh, writing down the interviews. So they would talk to me, they, but they would say, you know, you shouldn't record anything, you shouldn't note down. And secrecy was really 
one of the main issues of the resistance movement. So also I realized I, I do speak Thai, but I don't speak the Malay dialect that people um, speak in Southern Thailand. So at the same time, while I was there to do this free field trip, I was located at the campus of Fatani University and went to join a seminar there. And there were military officers there with me who were very open. And I got to talk to them and told them, you know, I'm interested in masculinities in Southern Thailand and the problem of violence. And they were like, oh, that's interesting. We have projects with a lot of young Muslim men. And they introduced me to, um, to this drug rehabilitation camp that actually became the subject of one of my chapters, telling me, you know, this is what the military does. You know, we're really great at doing all these development projects, basically, in, in southern Thailand. And, and that really got me interested. And I thought, hold on. What about if I try and approach this, this problem of masculinities and violence from the military side? You know, what is the violence of military development projects and how do they actually construct Muslim masculinity? So that was kind of the incentive. And, and I completely changed the PhD topic. And the book, actually, um, it was written a number of years after the, the PhD, but it's, it's based on the material of, of the PhD. I have to admit, I was a little surprised about how open the Thai military seemed to be about having you as a foreign researcher conducting fieldwork research about the insurgency. Why was this? A number of factors play into that. I think, first of all, we have to see the, the counterinsurgency projects that I look at in the book and that I, that I was interested, well, I, I would have been interested in any projects, but that I got access to were those projects that were promoted by the military also as kind of their good development projects, as I just said. You know, they, they also, they're doing a lot of PR. They have, for instance, Yalanan Baru, the drug re rehabilitation camp, they have their own website. They're using social media. So the military, I think, saw me as a chance to, to be presenting the, the great work that they are doing in southern Thailand to show the world, you know, that the Thai military is actually not doing just bad things. Um, I don't know if, if some listeners um, might have heard about some of the major um, human rights violations of, of the military, especially the Takbai incident. Uh, there's also accusations of torture, you know, forced disappearances, and so on. So I would, of course, not get access to the sites where um, the military is accused of, of applying torture. But I would get access, as I said, to the women's groups that they, that they are trying to support, to the, the kind of festivals that they are organizing, to the kind of religious dialogue that they stage to have, I don't know, Buddhist monks talk to um, Muslim imams. So, so that's one factor. I, saw, I also think it's, it's important to see that I'm a, I'm a woman um, and, and that was, mm, and I talk about it in, in the last chapter as well. You know, there's a, a strong, I think, patriarchal mindset that you can find with, with a lot of military officers and they would be very, you know, they, they would not see me as a threat. I think some male researchers have had very different experiences, but for me, it was quite often that military personnel would, would actually ask me, oh, are you sure that you can, you know, I didn't have a car. I, I, I was actually just riding my bike through through Madani town and, and they were like oh are you sure that you can ride your bike like you know we'll we'll give you a lift and and things like that so it was really this kind of protective masculinity that I that I talk about in the last chapter that they were also applying to myself and it's important to see that 
I was considered to be on none of the sides of the conflict. So that's kind of in military language. They were talking a lot about this is the other side. The other side is, is the insurgents. Their side is, of course, Thai Buddhist military. And I was kind of seen as more or less neutral um, because of my skin color, because of I, I'm a German. So I, I think um, are important factors to consider. And they were quite happy to talk to me in Thai. So that was also like <laughs> once they saw, you know, I'm a foreigner. So, so they felt kind of honored to be interacting with a foreigner. They could show kind of show up to other military officers Now, quite a number of books, articles, reports have been written on the violence in Thailand's deep south. What is different or distinctive about your book? I think what is really distinctive is the theoretical arguments that I'm making. So one of the main points that I'm making is to analyze the nature of the conflict and the reasons for the conflict as part of Thailand's state formation as an imperial formation. I think that is really distinctive. And it is distinctive that I that I had access to this material and that I combine on-the-ground material with this theoretical argument. As you say, the book is theoretically quite adventurous. Perhaps one of the controversial parts of your book, especially for Thai readers, I think, may be your characterization of Thailand, as you just said, as an imperial formation. And of course, when we think of empires, we think of the European colonial empires, I guess, first, and to a lesser extent, perhaps that of Japan before World War II. So how is it that we can call Thailand an imperial formation? So there's a theoretical argument behind it. And as you say, it's also an intervention into Thai studies. But I'll start with this theory first. So first of all, it's important to see Thailand or, well, I think as a, as a theoretical lens, it's, it's quite useful to think about states as state formations. This is the theoretical approach that's widely used in political anthropology, for instance, where the idea is that you don't see states as static entities, but as um, material discourses that need to be produced and reproduced continually through certain practices. Imperial formation, and I'm taking this term from Anne Stoller, holds that the way that dates reproduce their power is through constructions of difference. And these boundaries of this difference are seen as instable and need to be reproduced continually. Why I am applying this to Thailand and especially to the um, southern conflict situation, there's a number of reasons. And as, as you just said, Patrick, in, in Thai studies, there has been a long debate about how can we actually approach Thailand because it has never been colonized. So there's people saying, oh, we should call Thailand a semi-colonial nation state or an internally colonizing nation state. I think imperial formation really captures that it, it has never formally been colonized, but imperial, this ad- adjective goes beyond just formal relationships of conquest or colonization, but also captures the fact that informally Siam, which Thailand was called at the time, was of course part of the, the British informal empire. It was locked into a system of hierarchical relationships to the West through unequal treaties that were signed in the 19th century and really forced the royal elite at the time to construct a modern nation state. So that's kind of, you know, the external relationships and internally, especially uh, with, with regard to the South, this kind of situation also led to the fact that 
Patani. Um, so Southern Thailand used to be an Islamic sultanate, and it became part of the of the modern Thai nation state at the beginning of the 20th century through conquest. I think we we can say that, and and this is kind of the internal imperial move. So it's kind of external uh, imperial relationships that is really central to understanding what was happening then, and the internal imperial relationship that is really central to understanding what's going on in Southern Thailand right now. The first part of the book, or the first chapter of the book, is titled Policing History. And here you highlight the importance of history for both sides in the conflict, the insurgents and the Thai state. You write that the that part of the Thai military's counterinsurgency operations involve, I quote, policing the history of the region. That is ensuring that the Thai state's narrative of history is protected. Can you tell us how did they do this? Right. So I look at, at a handbook that was distributed to military officers in order to prepare them for their stay in the South. And I look at how history is constructed in this handbook. And I think one of the main parts of the kind of memory that the military is trying to construct is really the elision of the violent conquest of, of Patani. And actually, you can I, I have this, this anecdote, but I think it's important for, for listeners to know that this really also impacts the way historical research can be done on Southern Thailand, for instance, in the National Archives. Important documents that talk about this period in Southern Thailand are simply not accessible. So this is an important part of the way the military constructs this history, but also, you know, official national history is written. And also I talk about how, you know, the Muslims in Southern Thailand are represented in this handbook, for instance. They merely talk about Muslim culture instead of really recognizing that Islam is a political tradition that was significantly crushed with the integration of Patani into the modern Thai nation state. The book is about, amongst other things, counterinsurgency, and you write that Thailand's counterinsurgency strategy in the South was quite strongly influenced by the US military, of course, dating back to the Cold War era. Can you explain the connections? These are really important connections. First of all, personal um, connections, biographical connections. So um, quite a lot of the older military officers that I met in Southern Thailand actually kind of had learned everything they knew about counterinsurgency during uh, during the cold war and were you know reapplying some of the some of the practices that they learned then there was also there's also significant continuities in terms of discourse for instance um the main motto of counterinsurgency in southern thailand i don't know if it's if it's still the case but it was for a long number of years. It's called Dai, Kautung, Patana, which is understanding, reaching out, development. And uh, a lot of the terms were already used during the Cold War and, of course, implicitly have this idea of, you know, that the um, troops from central Thailand have to reach out to this peripheral region. Uh, back then, during the Cold War, it was this kind of reaching out to the northeast. I think there's a lot of continuities. I was surprised to read that another country that has recently begun to have an influence on the Thai military's counterinsurgency operations is Israel. Can you tell us a little bit about this cooperation? Yeah, I actually have to thank one of the anonymous reviewers of the book for prompting me to closer look at that. So Israel has become a very important player in terms of export of security technologies. 
For instance, there's a regular summit of security uh, technologies in Asia um, hosted by Israel. And especially so in, in chapter two, I actually uh, look at checkpoints. And for checkpoints, Israel are, you know, Israeli technologies are like the technologies to go to because they are applied um, in Palestine. And I think it's especially interesting because in Israel, in the Israel Palestine conflict, you of course also have this religious component that is very significant in southern Thailand as well. I think, yeah, it would be worth actually looking into that further. One might imagine that there uh, would be a high potential for cultural misunderstanding between the different actors in the region. You write that the Thai military goes to quite considerable lengths to train military personnel to to understand, even if it's on their own terms, the the culture and religion of the people of the southern border provinces. Can you tell us a little bit about how the military does that? Sure. So it's actually organized differently from unit to unit. A lot of the units had some trainings kind of in their home regions. So I mostly talked to officers that came from the northeastern region of Thailand. So they would have officers there who had been stationed in southern Thailand before, and then they kind of train the next batch of people that are um, supposed to be sent to southern Thailand. There's also, you know, some basic language training. As I said, there's a lot of different handbooks. So the handbook that I have worked on is actually just one example. You can, can find a lot of different ones. And there's also trainings for, for people that are in the South. So there's some, uh, the SB PAC, for instance, is organizing trainings. Um, those are mostly not for military officers, but just for people stationed in the South in, in different um, occupations. Another chapter in the book is about checkpoints, and you seem to spend quite a bit of your time at these. You estimate that there are about 500 of these checkpoints scattered around the southern border provinces to, or supposedly to enhance security. But what is the real function of these checkpoints and how effective were they? I think we have to understand these checkpoints more in terms of their symbolic function. So one very basic function, I think, is simply to mark the region, to show the military presence and to show that, you know, what used to be Rani is, is of course, Thailand and the military main power there. I was really surprised to, to learn how easy it became for me to actually do observations there, but then also realize that these checkpoints, at least when I was doing my research there cannot be compared to the kind of checkpoint that um, military counterinsurgents use in different in, in other counterinsurgency settings. So um, I think this symbolic function is, is very important to see. And what I argue in the chapter is that the stopping of people crossing these checkpoints is really guided by ideas of racialized religion. So it was quite clear that it it would be mostly Malay Muslims who were stopped at the checkpoints. And then what I also show is that there were different kind of passes by. So, so another factor was gender, for instance. If, if there were women, like older women passing by, they would be greeted rather. Or younger women, um, there were some flirtatious encounters. So the main kind of objects of military suspicion were really younger Malay Muslim men. You appear to have gotten to know some of the lower-level Thai military personnel who worked at these military checkpoints quite well. Can you tell us about how 
how they viewed the the locals and and the conflict more generally yeah it's it's important to know that uh, mostly the military officers that have to work at checkpoints we have to put it like this from the lower ranks of course there's a strong hierarchy um in the military and for them it was quite a dangerous job actually because there have been a lot of incidents where insurgents have have shot um, military personnel at checkpoints because they're quite vulnerable there. And I don't think you can you can generalize their opinion towards the local population. It was quite complex and, and really dependent on, on their personal biographies. There were some people from the military that, you know, really liked to be in the South, had, had actually continued their stay there because usually, for instance, conscripts are regularly rotated, so they would stay only for quite a short time, but, but some um, would really like it there. A lot of them were quite scared, um, um, just, you know, really wanted to go home. They they had the opportunity to go back uh, regularly in like very long bus drives <laughs> and, um, and were always looking forward to the next kind of drive back to the Northeast and didn't have much interaction with the local population at all they did not understand their language they they didn't understand why they were why they had these funny religious practices they would go to the local market and tell me that you know the smells there were strange they were, they were missing their home food for instance at at one of the one of the military units that I that I visited quite regularly they would always cook their own um northeastern thai food they would speak in their northeastern dialect and kind of really really felt like living in a in a different country Counterinsurgency, of course, doesn't only involve military operations. In Chapter 3, you discuss a kind of outreach program, I guess you could call it, where the military organised a rehabilitation program for local men who had histories of drug abuse. And uh, did this program, as you write, closely involve the local religious authorities. How was it connected to the counterinsurgency operation? So it was counterinsurgents who kind of invented this program. And uh, at first it was kind of the main base of this program was, was opposite the main military camp uh, in Yala, but, but then it was moved inside, inside the military area. So it was, it was really an important kind of flank of the civil society branch of, of counterinsurgency. And the idea really was, and there were after that similar programs that tried to do similar things to mobilize religion to, as, as military uh, language has it, to draw people on, on their side. So to, a lot of military officers had this idea that people in southern Thailand did not have the correct understanding of Islam, but had to learn to um, learn the correct understanding of Islam. And this correct understanding would, of course, imply that that they would accept the, the power of the Thai nation state and they would accept the political um, situation as it was, and that they would only apply. Islam kind of to their personal personal lives disconnected from from politics. One of the main themes of the book is the significance of gender in the conflict in in the south. Let's start with the issue of interactions between the soldiers and local women. You write that the military leadership is extremely sensitive about this. Why so? Yeah, there's a couple of issues. As I say in the in the chapter, an important part of the imperial formation is 
is to construct difference in terms of gender. And as I show, this difference is also constructed on the plane of different constructions of, of masculinities. Military officers in, in southern Thailand were really seen as, you know, hierarchically higher than like Malay Muslim men. And this was not only the, the case with the military, but a lot of young girls were actually quite fond of, of some of the soldiers. And, and there were certain ideas about, for instance, the uniform. I also have, have an article about that signifying politeness, signifying kind of, if you want, you know, a more civilized status. Than, than young, you know, than the status of, of young Malay Muslim men in, in southern Thailand. So what I show in the chapter is that there were quite a lot of, yeah, as, as you said, interactions between local women and soldiers. And for the military, first of all, they were trying to not make these interactions more public. There were a lot of accusations of some of them were deliberately spread by insurgent groups, but of course there's a, a large gray area and it's quite probable that um, cases of um, misconduct have happened and the military was very keen to somehow try and, for instance, pay large sums of money to the families to just keep everything at bay because this, this would have really kind of destroyed this idea of the, the polite Thai Buddhist military officer stationed in southern Thailand. This part of the book I thought was particularly interesting you, when you're writing about the, the romantic liaisons between uh, military personnel and local women, which apparently are, are quite common. I think you cite as many as 1,000 cases of soldiers marrying locals and you give some examples of local women actually appearing to be the ones who are you know, making the advances could you tell us something more about these these cross cultural liaison or cross religious liaisons? Yeah, I think it's important to see that uh, Patrick, because you just said cross cultural and and cross religious, I actually discuss these terms in the book and try to deconstruct them to, up to a certain point as well, because of course these liaisons are happening not on a level playing field, but, but on the field of these power hierarchies that are, that are there. And that's actually also important, an important factor in, in these relationships. So I talked to, to quite a few women who were married to soldiers, for instance, and for them, it's important that soldiers have a regular income, that they have regular jobs and, and that through soldiers, and that's also, I think, very typical of other colonial set, settings, so through soldiers, they, they were um, able to get out of, of, their, of, of Southern Thailand. So um, that's very important to see. And for the Thai military, I think, as, as I said, as long as there was no charge of Ray, they would actually be quite happy to see soldiers liaising with local women. There was a lot of talk about the power of love and it's very romantic. And what I do in the chapter is really look at these discourses and I show that, for instance, the idea of love also has a history in like constructing the nation state and thinking about uh, actually, again, eliding the, the, the violence that, that is behind this whole political conflict and instead Saying, you know, now we can just come together and it's only a question of, of creating cultural understanding. Another surprising statistic uh, I got from your book was that 70% of all conversions to Islam in the southern border provinces are of Thai Buddhist soldiers or policemen who've married local Muslim women. Is this true? 
that was the statistic that I got from the local Islamic Council. Yeah, the thing is that, you know, once uh, liaison is actually, you know, once the, the, the families learn of that, then, of course, the question is, okay, do you actually, you know, to, if, if it's uh, the daughter of a local family, then they would pose the question, do you want to continue with it? Then, then you should go and get married. And then the option for the soldier is to either, you know, that there were also a lot of cases of, of soldiers fleeing back. <laughs> <laughs> as, as they were saying, you know, fleeing back to um, to the northeast. But there were also quite quite a few soldiers who converted to Islam to be able to have this relationship while they were staying. Then the other question is, would they be continuing the, their relationship once uh, back to the south? So there were, you know, the, this number doesn't necessarily say that they would be continuing the relationship. It was for them also a way, I guess, to have a sexual relationship while, while they were there that was then accepted by the family and quite a few went back and some of them actually had relationships back in their home bases. Another gendered aspect of the, the counterinsurgency operations in the, the Deep South is the use of female paramilitaries, which again is very, very interesting. You write that it's the first time in Thai military history that women were employed in combat positions. Tell us about the role that these female paramilitaries play in southern Thailand's counterinsurgency operations. Sure. So the deployment of female paramilitaries was actually prompted by protests that the insurgency movement organized because they had realized that the Thai military was quite cautious with women because of what we just talked about, this whole complex issue of relationships, um, accusations of rape, and so on. So, for instance, at checkpoints, usually women were not checked at all because male officers did not want to be touching Muslim women. So um, the insurgency movement, they started to organize women's protests by, by mainly women and children where whole villages were blocked. And uh, these became really powerful. So the Thai military had to think about, you know, what can we do about that? And they started to train women, female paramilitary forces, so that they could have, first of all, female paramilitaries stationed at checkpoints, but also so that they could actually react to these, um, to these protest movements. Uh, towards the, the end of the book, you you discuss how the military leadership has on occasion tended to frame the conflict in gendered terms. And there's one part where you cite a speech by General Anupong, I think it was in 2010, where he compa- compares the Thai state to a benevolent father trying to protect his daughter, i.e. The, the Deep South. Does the Thai military really see the conflict in these terms? And in your experience on the ground, how kind of how accurate is that i think it's it's very accurate and as i as i just said like even i myself was often often approached in these kind of protective terms and what i do in in the chapter is explain how these ideas of of protection themselves function to create vulnerable subjects and have their own power logics as well. And I think what is really important about this quote that I that I cite at the beginning of the chapter is feminized idea of Southern Thailand. And what I do in the chapter is explain how this feminization, actually, we have to understand it in the context of a very important political transformation that happened right after Patani was integrated into into Thailand at uh, into Siam at the time, at the beginning of the 20th century, which is that they, of course, you know, crushed the political opposition 
and crushed the political tradition of Islam. As I said, Patani used to be an, an Islamic sultanate. But what they did was to say, okay, you can, you don't have to convert to be Thai Buddhist. You can keep your your own uh, Muslim religion, but um, you should only keep it on a personal level. So Islam, so they introduced Islamic family law. So matters of Islam now only um, should be in the realm of the family, in the realm of heritage. And they created this whole system of Islamic councils. And from a feminist theoretical viewpoint, this kind of privatization of, of what used to be a political tradition is also kind of putting the, the political public tradition of, of Islam back to the feminized private realm of the family. Finally, having seen the Thai military's counterinsurgency operations up close, how confident are you that they will achieve success? Not really confident. <laughs> um, although I have to say I, um, I, I have not been back there um, for a couple of years, but the whole argument of, of the book is actually that uh, the way that counterinsurgency is conducted there reproduces the very uh, the very power structures of the Thai nation state that uh, sparked the resistance um, in the first place. So, and I guess what I do in the conclusion is is to say that now some of the practices um, that were used in southern Thailand are actually applied on a national scale. So rather than saying the military is solving the counterinsurgency in southern Thailand, I think the movement is the other way around, namely that the military is now, you know, using some of these means on a national scale and worsening the situation there. Before we uh, wind up, we always like to ask our guests, uh, are you working on a new project? And could you give us a taste of what that project uh, is about? Yes, I I am. I have been actually um, for quite a while. I would say it's a follow-up from Chapter 3 um, where I'm interested into how the category of religion is mobilized to discipline young Muslim men. And so the current project that I'm working on is more historical and looking at how modern Buddhism was constructed vis-a-vis -vis, uh, ideas of Islam in the 19th century and what all this has to do with the imperial relationships in the 19th century. Ruth Stryker, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Uneasy Military Encounters, The Imperial Politics of Counterinsurgency in Southern Thailand, published by Cornell University Press in 2020. Thank you so much, Patrick. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. As always, thanks everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to other podcasts about books that deal with this part of Southeast Asia, like Greg Raymond's Thai Military Power, A Culture of Strategic Accommodation, published by Nias Press in 2018. Remember that instead of reading the book yourself, you can download or stream this interview and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes.